0: So turn with me to, to Psalm 4, uh, if you're not already there, and uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 4 this morning, quiet confidence, quiet confidence. Psalm 1 and 2 stand solid, like, like tall oak doors. On, in Psalm 1, we have God's law. In the next door, Psalm 2, we have God's King. So if we're coming up to this doorway and we see these things, we're going we're to pause. We're going to be careful before proceeding any further. Then when we open the doors, we see Psalm 3. We have certain expectation. We see God's law, God's king. Things should be going well. And upon opening the door to Psalm 3, we see God's king, King David. Uh, but, but unexpectedly, he's barefoot and he's running out the side entrance of the great hall. He is running for his life from his son and as a consequence of his past sins. Uh, for, for a time, King David ruled ancient Israel through God's law. For a time, things were good, but not now. Now, his king, kingship is subverted by, by really the last person that, that anybody would expect and certainly that, that David would expect, by his favorite son, Absalom. In Psalm 3, King David, in a portion of his court, Fled his kingdom, now sleeping in dark caves. Meanwhile, Absalom is this newly anointed king, but he's a false king. The true king went into hiding. He's shamed, he's dishonored. But but late at night in those caves, David David came to. He'd been in sin, he was suffering the consequences of his sin, but he came to. He came to his spiritual senses and he wrote down musical notes and lyrics to several psalms. Reflecting on all that went wrong over the years, he reached for his old harp. He he plucked it, he adjusted each string into tune, he began singing to what was left of his court, instilling in their tired souls renewed confidence. And so it would have been about 3,000 years ago now that a harp and her harpist first played Psalm 4. David, the exiled, now king of the cave, he moved his people to look to the one who reigned inside that dark place and outside of it, who ruled over the starry night and the soul's dark night. As that evening campfire in their small little space, as the light filled that space, so too did David's confidence grow in God. The warmth of the fire extended from David's cold hands softening his heart once again, where where even David's enemies could be forgiven, could be set free from sin and welcomed, just, just as God had first done for David, forgiving him, welcoming him. This is Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace... I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Well, many years later, the Psalms were sung by by the entire nation of Israel. Uh, This one likely sung at night uh, for obvious reasons. God's people would would go to bed infused with a confidence that was just much larger than, than their concerns. No matter how hard or, or annoying or infuriating or monotonous the day had been, the Psalms lifted the nation to the heights where they saw their lives through the very eyes of God. And, and with God's help this morning, Psalm 4 will, will lift us to new heights of confidence. It will ignite our tired souls to live in the light of God's presence. You might be here and you might say, you know, well, I've, I've read Psalm 4. I've read lots of the Bible. Like, what, what is this confidence you're talking about? Now, I'm, I'm stressed out. I, I have bills to pay, errands to run, mouths to feed. I'm just scraping by. I'm, I'm not good at juggling time between my job, my spouse, the house, my kids, school, let, let, alone, let alone reading my Bible every day. I'm, tr- I'm trying to fight sin, but I keep fighting everyone else around me. So so quiet confidence, quiet confidence. Well, you clearly missed what happened to me this week. I've I've lost all control of my life. My my family is suffering incredible pain, and now I just lie awake at night, not knowing what's going to happen next. I don't think I've ever been more distraught, disturbed, angered than I am right now. So, so how in the world do you expect me to walk through the, the kind of days that I have with, with Psalm 4 kind of confidence? Well, let me be clear. Let me be clear. I do not expect you to have this kind of confidence. Self-confidence matters very little when you're running for your life. <laughs> I do not expect you to have this confidence. Rather what I am doing, what any pastor is trying to do when we open up the word of God, I I am pleading with you to look to the one who does have this confidence and who can give it to you. You know, after rising from the dead and and with, at at this point, uh, understandably great confidence, what does Jesus say about himself? Jesus told us that the scriptures, that the Psalms were about him St. Augustine referred to Jesus as the very singer of the psalms. And, and scholars have long noted this. Uh, just think about what was happening in the gospels on occasions of pilgrimage to Jerusalem, like the Passover, Jesus would have been a part of the community who sang from the Psalter as they went to Jerusalem. During the washing of his feet, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41. Well, on the cross, Jesus uses several phrases from Psalm 22, "My God, why have you forsaken me? It is done." Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so as our representative, Jesus experienced our human condition yet without sin. And so the Psalms become his prayers to God. The Psalms are to be seen as his words. And through our union with him, they become our words. So so we can see this, right, in, in Psalm 4. When, when David sang Psalm 4 in the cave, David's enemies opposed him and they should not have opposed him. When Jesus lived Psalm 4 on this earth, Jesus' enemies opposed him and they should not have opposed him. Psalm 4, David was not worthy, but God listened to and loved David. When Jesus lived Psalm 4 on this earth, Jesus was worthy and God listened to and loved him. When David sang Psalm 4, and he, he brought sacrifices to God. On the altar, God accepted David's sacrifices, and he did this by loving and not punishing David. On the cross, God accepted Jesus' sacrifice, and he did this by pouring out his wrath on Jesus, punishing him. And they seem like misplaced, misplaced punishments, right? For David, it seems like a misplaced punishment. It should have been on him. But it was placed on another. God, grace was shown to David, to Israel. The punishment on Christ seems to be misplaced. God placed his wrath on Jesus. God accepted his son's sacrifice so that we can be accepted. Grace was shown in place of the wrath we deserve. Grace, grace has now placed his unconditional love. On his people. This is who God is. He is a God of grace. This is in his character. It is not a misplaced punishment, it is the plan and fulfillment of God. And Jesus fulfilled the Psalms because he lived the Psalms. David, David penned the words to the Psalms that we're reading this morning, but but who's saying it best? Jesus did. And we can share in the confidence that Jesus had walking through life's troubles, when we look to him, and when we look to him alone. And how do we look to him? How do we look to him? By believing in him, by believing in the work that he achieved, that he achieved all the work that we needed, that we did not do, including all the confidence that we will ever need. He did this by undergoing his sacrificial death for us on the cross, and what? By rising again from the dead. This, this is ultimate confidence, and it can be had through Christ. So in Christ, we have confidence in the one who first called us. In Christ, we have confidence to teach and reach our enemies. In Christ, we have confidence to work through life's problems. So first, in Christ, we have confidence in the one who first called us. Uh, David, David has the surety that when he speaks, God will listen verse 3, he says this, the Lord hears when I call to him. David David makes this humble request in verse 1, answer me. And then he says to his friends and to his enemies in verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. God, God sets his people apart, meaning God makes a distinction between, he deals differently with his people. God, God doesn't set us apart by setting us off to the side. He sets us apart so that we would be bringers of glory to him and that we would do this by living and walking in his presence. In Exodus, Moses pleaded with God to not remove his presence from him and from the people. He asks God this question in Exodus 33. He says, what else other than your presence will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? If God's presence leaves, his people have nothing. We are set apart to be in his presence. And, and who is set apart? Well, it's clear. What does it say in Psalm 4? The godly. The godly ones are the ones set apart. And godly here, it just, it just means the beloved one. The beloved one who has entered into covenant with the Lord by divine love. By this loyal love that God gives to his people. So then we ask the question, well, how, how do we know if we are included in this? How do I know if I'm, I'm a part of the godly? How do I know if I'm set apart? So let's, let's think this through, right? We, we've opened up the Bible today to hear from God. The enemies of God don't want God. They don't want to hear about God. They want nothing to do with him. What does Psalm 4 say? They want to shame the people of God. They want to tell lies about him. They want to ignore him. But friends of God want God. So if you're here and you are convicted of sin, you know you're guilty, but you've you've never repented, you've never repented of your sin, then go to where God has brought you today and go to where God is leading you today, to to his word and to his people. Please, Please speak with us. Let us know. Tell us what is going on so we can pray for you And help you to leave just the the disjointed chaos of sin that is ruining your life. Help us to help you move onward toward the embrace, the confident embrace of the Father. So, this morning, we invite you to become friends of God. That is possible, it's incredible. To any any, uh, young kids that are here today, that that are attending to what I'm saying, let me ask you a question. Do you want to follow God? Do you want to be godly and please him? Well, hear this. If you call to God, if you call out to God, he will answer your call. He will respond. And let me, let me say it another way, okay? He already has answered you, and he awaits your response, How do I know God has answered you? Well, the Bible tells me so, right? The Bible tells me so. He sent his son to die so that you might be forgiven. That is your answer. Call to him. Psalm 4.1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. David's plea for God to act is based on what God has already graciously done for David. In any time we ask for grace, what are we asking for? We're asking for God to act even though we've sinned. Saying, saying be gracious to me is saying, God, I've done wrong. Please don't treat me the way that I deserve to be treated. Please treat me the way that I don't deserve to be treated. Please show me favor. Praying be gracious to me, to God, is praying, God, please be who you are. It's, it's in a lion's blood to roar after a successful hunt. It's, it's in their nature. It's in our nature, or it's in like, you know, like sports people's nature, right? When your favorite team wins, what do you do? You just cheer. You get up and cheer. It's in your blood. It is in our kind father's character that he graces his children when they run to him with, with dirt and cuts all over their hands. It is in God's nature to be gracious, David says, answer me, O God of my righteousness. This is is talking about the Christian's relationship with God. We relate to God based on his covenantal promise that he will come to the rescue of his children in need. It It is a righteousness given to us from God. When David says, my righteousness, he's not saying that outside the scope of God first giving it to David. David knows this fully well because God has promised to David. God has promised to David. So David's plea is for God to act based on what God has already graciously done. So set apart, godly, righteous. Running to God and running away from your sin has never been about following the rules for the sake of rule following. God did not Program our minds to run like moral computers. He made us image bearers. He made us to be like Him, to have fellowship with Him. It's always been about faithful, loyal love with God. So so if you're here today, you resonate with that, and your soul longs for that, and you trust, you trust Jesus, you obey Jesus, then have confidence that God has set you apart for himself and pray Psalm 4 the way it should be prayed. When I pray, God, you are going to hear me and you're going to answer. Look at at how the psalmist uses these imperatives when speaking to God. Answer me, be gracious, hear my prayer. These imperatives are not commands. David is not commanding God. Anytime you read the Psalms and it looks like David's like commanding God to to do something, they are not commands. No, these are humble commands cries. One scholar says it this way, this, this telling God what you need in the imperative is a, it's a confession of inadequacy. Imperatives call to another to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Answer me, God, because I've got nowhere else to go. Be gracious because my sin is too great. Hear my prayer. Do for me what I do not deserve. And, and give me your ear. Forgive me. Help me. Because I cannot help myself. And if, and if you've never prayed this kind of desperate prayer, then, then I, just, I just want to say that I'm not sure you've understood the reality of the gravity of the situation that you find yourself in. And, and what is that situation you find yourself in? It's called life. Life. Life is trouble. Life is trouble from birth to death. Answer me, O God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. They're they're not religiously forced cries. A newborn infant's cries are not the cries of of a religious zealot. What are they? They are cries of necessity, of hunger, of pleading for help. I love this. uh, one, one, One writer says, he says, I only pray when I'm in trouble. I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I am in trouble all the time, and so I pray all the time. Now, recently, I, I spoke with a member here who has been uh, just just enduring a tough time. We we spoke; it was very brief after service one Sunday, but it, but it was clear to me that there's just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of trouble happening in their life. And uh, but but they said this to me: they said, "We don't know the outcome, but we will trust the Lord." I will trust him even if it's not a good outcome. Man, sp- speaking of being set apart, godliness practices loyal trust and love despite worsening conditions. This, this kind of confidence is, is not just conjured up from inside of us. We are too weak. No, this is a God-given confidence that in the face of disaster, in the face of dead ends, we are lifted by the Lord to see him working and willing to accomplish his purposes. In Christ, know that your impossible-to-solve problems are ultimately troubling the wrong person because in Christ, God is for you. You have God's very attention. And and it's the the very relationship that the world lacks and so desperately needs. Christian, tonight... On your bed, in your heart, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Have confidence in this. In Christ, we have confidence to teach and reach our enemies. God is in the business of turning enemies into friends. And then he takes those friends, his recovering enemies, that's us, his, his people, right? And he uses us to reach his enemies. This, this psalm is an invitation by song to our enemies, to reassess, it's for them to reassess the decisions that they are making day in, day out, that build up over the weeks, the months, the years. To reassess if they continue rejecting God. Why? What, what are you doing? David had prior experience in singing to his enemies. And, uh, and it didn't go well, did it? Uh, he, he played his harp, right? He would play his harp for King Saul, and Saul would calm down a little bit. And it's like, okay, everything's good. And then, and then the next second, well, there's a spear just getting hurled at David. And then he's almost killed. Uh, he has experience in this. He's experiencing it again from another angle. You know, God never told us, hey, go, go preach the gospel, make disciples, and then, you know, it's gonna go moderately well for you. <laughs> you know, the, the walk up to Gethsemane I'm sure it was just painfully raw for Jesus. That walk down after being betrayed, leading to Christ's death, unimaginable. Unimaginable. Psalm 4:2. Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David asks his enemies a simple question: When are you going to stop disgracing the Lord's anointed one? Absalom's men anointed Absalom as king, but he was a fraud. David was anointed by a priest based on God's promise. Absalom had no such priest because he had no promise. And and it's fascinating. You'd think that the main problem here for David would would be that his kingdom was being usurped. Um, but, But the main problems from David's view are that there are heart problems. His enemies come after David's honor, but that was an honor given by who? Given by God. The main problem was that this was an attack against God. And and history is replete with examples of this. God's enemies just just spewing out lies in order to do what? To undermine the Lord's word and the Lord's worth. And we've all heard the lies. They're often the same. Uh, there, there, There are no new lies about God. God doesn't exist. God doesn't get involved with us. There's no one true God. The Bible isn't the inspired word of God. Jesus is not God. And when we hear these lies... Our response is the psalmist's response. It's a response of pleading, how long will you love what is evil and hate what is good? The, the Psalm 4 paraphrase or rendering for when Judas kissed the very cheek of God, O oh, Judas, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? In Psalm 4, David commands his enemies in seven ways. He gives them seven teaching uh, tools so that they would turn to make a heart-level sacrifice and place their confidence in God. Well, he does this mainly in Psalm 4, verses 4 through 5. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds. Be silent. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. This long list for his enemies. So know, know that God has set me apart know that you can humbly turn to him now and become godly too. He teaches his enemies, be angry. He teaches them, do not sin. Ponder, search, meditate in your heart. Be silent before God. Offer right sacrifices and trust in God. The word here for angry, it's it's often translated uh, tremble. And and it can refer to, to like a strong emotion like anger, fear or, or disquietude. It's, it's, a, it's not like a, a brooding anger. It's like an anger that just wants to lash out. And ponder, David wants him to, to think this through. It has the connotation of meditating or thinking during the night hours. The psalmist tells his enemies to consider these things in their hearts and be still. So, so consider, reflect, work out your anger. When, when you're angry, one of the best things that you can do after that, after that switch is flipped, is just to stop and just think for a second. Maybe you're wrong or angry for the, for the wrong reason. You're angry because you're not getting your way. It's a selfish anger. You're angry because life is not working out the way that you want it to work out. This is a call to a humble, silent repentance. And and thank God for not giving you peace when you don't get your way. It's one of the most loving things that the Lord can do for us. You need a total change of mind. It could be you're angry at the same things God is angry at. Evil motives, wicked actions, lying, abuse, stealing, murder. Maybe you or someone you love has been sinned against and, and you're just you're just boiling with anger. Be angry and do not sin. Work it out. God, you told me to love my enemies, and I really, I just wanna hate them right now. They hate you, and they have hurt me. Why why should I not feel rage towards them? So if you've been sinned against, what are you called to do? Well, the Bible tells us in Psalm four, be angry and do not sin. So be angry. What else does the Bible tell us to do? Rejoice. Where does it tell us that? Psalm 4, connect Psalm 4 for be angry and Psalm 4, 7, you have put joy in my heart. It's happening right, right at the same time. We hold these things in tension together, hold these together and remember, remember too that as Christians, we live on the other side of the cross. What does Jesus tell us? Blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you say, okay, okay, I got it, right? I, I got it, I need to be godly. Fine, pastor, I see it, it's right there in the text. I need to do the right thing, I need to let God handle it. But, but I still feel just red hot mad. I, I, I'm still just intense with anger. So what, what do I do? Well, let me suggest to you that, that perhaps, perhaps you're thinking through anger in the wrong way. What are we trying to do right now? Ponder, reflect, think, think through this. Here's what I mean. Be angry and do not sin. Think through your anger and let's, let's think through anger in general, right? Why, why do we get angry at all? just step back for a second. Why do we get angry at all? What is it about us as humans that can cause us to just lash out so strongly at the very people that we love the most? Why do we rage at the wrongdoing done against us? You know, some, sometimes we get enraged rightly at the injustices of this world. Uh, even if you're the, the most peaceful, passive person on earth, uh, you're gonna start getting a little mad if somebody comes up to you and just starts taking stuff out of your pockets and starts lying and saying, hey, this person's stealing from me, come and arrest it. Like, it, you're gonna get mad. You're gonna get mad. To be a human who gets angry is to be a person with a moral conscience and to have a soul. You would be wrong to not be angry at sin. We are told to hate sin. So be angry. Be angry. But there are at least two problems with human anger. There are probably more, but there are at least two problems with human anger. One, most, most humans and, and most of our anger, it ends up misdirected or, or misapplied, right? I can be angry about the right things and then, and then pff, sinfully act out on that. Two, and, and more importantly to our text, all human anger is insufficient, On on one level, it's less that our anger is sinful and more that our continued anger is not good enough. Our rightly placed anger is still an anger left wanting. Our anger is insufficient to deal with, with the amount of evils in this world. In order to be truly angry at the world's wickedness, we need a perfect anger. Your anger, my anger... It's deficient. It's, it's not enough. The Holy Spirit, through James, said this the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And again, this is not because it's wrong to get angry. We are not allowed vengeance on what makes us angry because vengeance is too good for us. God is just and perfect in dealing out justice through his wrath. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So so talk about a confidence boost, right? Any true wrongdoing, any sin that someone has taken out on us, it has either been dealt with or it's about to be dealt with. Either Jesus died for that sin and there's forgiveness for this evil or there will be hell to pay. Have confidence. Have confidence that what God does not set his love on, his righteous anger will one day consume. God is, God is not content to just passively watch his world spin by. He has set a course to deal with human depravity and sin once and for all. His son's shed blood on the cross can forgive even the most wicked of sins. But, but if you're here and you're listening to this and you would rather die than to humble your heart before God and trust this good news, then you need to know this. God will repay. Christian brothers and sisters, we are, we are lifted to new heights of confidence in Christ when we leave our anger in the hands of the one who has and who will deal rightly against sin. He's going to set it straight. When we're moved toward anger, we need to pause, we need to ponder, we need to meditate, reflect, and recognize, as as one scholar has said, that God is giving help at a far deeper level than any of our meddling will ever reach. Being angry and and not sinning this this powerfully impacts our evangelism to God's enemies to our enemies when we share the gospel with our enemies we don't we don't just say some lines and then move on and done no we we confidently promote gospel joy with our attitudes and actions if God can forgive me he can forgive you i, I don't yeah, you know, some enemies. It's like, man, I don't even want you to be forgiven, but God loves you so much better than I can love you. You can be forgiven. We confidently share the gospel with heartfelt affections to to even the worst of the worst. In Christ, we have confidence to work through life's problems. Psalm four and the other psalms—they're they're not; these are not uh, rote steps to just memorize on the way to to obedience. Okay, reading and praying through the psalms over and over again, here's what it's going to do. Here's what it's going to do for us. It's going to rewire our minds to give full attention and full awareness to God and God's work. We, we don't just look to the practical. We don't just look to the pragmatic things that make life better. We look to the promise and the promise fulfiller because we serve a God who is better than life and beyond this life. Psalm 4:6. there are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. One, one comment on this passage goes like this. When nagging doubts arise, confidence can easily be undermined. Enemies are all too real, all too visible. So there's, is there anybody who can really help you against them? Can God really do any good? Well, doubts are real. So that means our doubts need to be faced with reality. And, and they need to be faced with a, with a Psalm 4 Reality. Have we noticed along the way today the vast amount of good that God has already shown to the godly in these these brief eight verses? Verse one God is the giver of our righteousness. If we're in Christ, we're blessed. Blessed, referring to eternal good, good that lasts forever. When when we are tempted to doubt whether any good will come our way, we've got to ask this we've got to ask, is God the the powerful God of my righteousness or, or am I? Am I tempted to worship some weak God of my own unfulfilled desires? Who will show us some good? Well, it depends on your definition of good. If it's, if it's your definition, then maybe we're done here. <laughs> if it's God's definition of good, then, then we're in business. God is the giver of our righteousness. He is the measure and standard of all that is good. He is the infuser of godly confidence. God gives so much good to us. Again, In verse 1, God provides relief to us when we're in distress. And that that word relief, it's like a word picture in the Hebrew. And it means being given space when when we're stuck in a tight corner. It's like that sigh of relief we we all want. When we're feeling boxed in by suffering, and we don't don't know if there's going to be a way out of it. But when we do get out of it, and there's that, I can breathe easy, there's that sigh of relief what this relief is. And and for the Christian, even in difficult trials, even when David was in that cave, he had a sigh of relief, knowing that God's goodness is great enough, that that by faith we can have this relief, that rescue is coming our way. Verse three, God sets apart the godly. He, He singles us out and in the best way possible. And verse one and verse three, God hears our prayer. We have his ear. He gives us his time and attention. We have supernatural confidence that he hears our prayers. And so why are our prayer, prayer lives so often not there? Why, why do we so often go prayerless? I, I think it's often because we're so fixated on just the things that are happening right around us, that are directly in front of us, that we, that we think that we can control or, or do something about. We often religiously wish others would hear our concerns, but, but to what end, right? We, we pray with our, our pocketbooks, right? We pray to our, our economics, dear economic system, I know you don't know me, you don't care about me, but lend me your ear. Please take my efforts, my money, and then just, just convert them into a, a comfortable future for my family and just a little bit for myself, right? But we often religiously wish these things, but to what end? Dear government, I know you don't know me, but if you could please just take my votes, the things that I post on social media and put them together, the world's just going to be so much better. Please do this. All right, it's so much better to call on God who hears his children and has given us so much good. What do we pray? Father in heaven, I know you know me, and I have growing confidence that you care about me. Please use my imperfect words and actions and make your enemies into lifelong friends. God shows limitless good to us through hearing our prayers. Verse five, we are told to put our trust in God. Despite outward circumstances, like, like living in a cave, running for our lives, God is trustworthy. He is good. Both of those things are happening at once. Despite being nailed to a wooden cross, God is trustworthy. God is good. Despite running out of money, Failing relationships, failing health. God is good to us. Verse seven, God gives gladness. Verse eight, God gives peace. Verse eight again, God provides us with safety in him. God is constantly pouring out good to us. Do we recognize it? Are we aware of it? The Psalms just open up our minds and our eyes to see all that God is actively doing in his world. Who, who will show us some good? God has. You've seen his goodness, right? At the end of the day, we, we all too often forget that, that in certain seasons of life, troubles just abound, maybe more than usual, right? Inconveniences arise, uh, things, things tick us off, we get agitated, we get irked, we get angry, and sometimes for no, no good reason at all. We, we need a recalibration, we just need some rest. Psalm 4, 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so some nights, all, all we can do is ask for peace for that night. And that, that is enough. We are simply called to obey, and it will be God's decision as to whether he will even keep us through the night. There's truly no greater joy than just just obeying the Lord and entrusting the night with him, right? God doesn't wake us up. Hey, you got some work to do. I can't do this thing on my own, right? When we wake up in the morning, what is God already doing? He's already setting the course for the day. He does not wait for us to get up and start working. He is already working out his plan, and this gives us confidence to just further entrust him with the troubles of the world and, and get some sleep. So the beginning of Psalm 4 met us with this poetic realism, crying out to God. And, and we see along the way, if we, if we knew the true status of our trouble, then we would find our greatest comfort in the comfort here at the end of Psalm 4. And we would, we would say this with confidence, you and you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. There is no one else that can make us dwell in safety but the Lord Almighty. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.